0: Om Hridaya Kamala Rajitam Nirvikalpam, Sada Sada Kila Mekasvarupam Prakriti Vikriti Shunyam Nityam Ananda Murtim Vimala Paramahamsam Ramakrishnam Bhajamaha Om Nirupamamati sukshmam Nishprapancham Niriham Gagana sadrishamisham sarva bhuta adivasham. Triguna brahma rupa varinyam. krishnam Bajamaha, Vitaritum avatirnam jnana bhakti prashantihi. Pranayagalita chittam jiva dukkha sahishnum. Dritta Sahaja Samadim Jinmayam Goma Langam Vimalaparamaham Sam Ramakrishnam Bhajama Om I meditate on that one who
1: sits resplendent in the middle of the lotus of the heart, one without a second, beyond the touch of nature, eternal, the very image of bliss, beyond notions of existence and non-existence. That one I adore. I meditate on that one who is exceedingly subtle, formless and actionless, who is as vast as the sky, the lord of all, the indweller in all beings, beyond the touch of the three gunas. That one I adore. That one who has the form of consciousness, bliss absolute. Om. I meditate on that one who takes up a human form, moved by compassion to end the suffering of humanity, to
0: teach knowledge, devotion, and the highest peace, that one who, though light of limb, is the very embodiment of consciousness, that one who is ever established in Sahaja Samadhi, that Sri Ramakrishna I adore. May all of this be an offering to him. Om, Peace. Peace. Peace.
1: I can't tell you how excited I am to talk about the Bhakti Sutra. You know, of the four yogas, this one is my special favorite, but I'm pretty quiet about it for for that very reason. (laughs) Um, And so it's a wonderful opportunity now to explore it. This most excellent of yogas, this tradition of bhakti, this ecstatic love for God. Now, all of the yogas are, yeah, right, Kat? (laughs) So all of the yogas make us happy in a particular way. You have to remember the goal of all of this is fulfillment, but not in like a fleeting transient way as we typically find pursuing things in the world, but in a lasting, fulfilling, meaningful, and deep way. So we understand from this tradition that nothing short of enlightenment, of realizing realizing God or realizing the self will, will ever truly fulfill us. We've already, we've come upon a settled conviction that nothing short of this will fulfill us. So we've realized together, the purpose of life is God-realization. So call it what you will, self-realization, Brahma-gyana, Nirvikalpa-samadhi, Savikalpa-samadhi, God-realization, whatever name you give it, it's clear that until one is established in this experience that transcends all experience, no lasting happiness can be found. So the goal then in all of the yogas is the same, meaning, purpose, happiness, true happiness. Hello, dear song. Welcome. So, the happiness that we're talking about here is a very ennobling kind of happiness. Ah, we see you today. (laughs) It's not a fleeting happiness. It's not a sensation happiness. It's beyond the senses. And more importantly, because it is beyond the senses, because it is beyond the mind, it is therefore not susceptible to change and decay, as with the things of the senses and the things of the mind. So we are looking for something transcendent to the body and mind, to the to the realm of experience. It's an otherworldly sort of happiness that alone will fulfill us. We know that. And each of the yogas, each of the approaches to spiritual life, conceptualize this same goal in different ways. So it's tremendously important to look at this one no thing, if I may be buddhist about it, in different ways. And the way we're going to look at it over the next several weeks is through the lens of bhakti, through the lens of love for God. And that's incredibly exciting. So let's, in the beginning of all of this, just sketch out all these different yogas and the different ways in which they conceive the ultimate goal or the ultimate uh, attainment, the ultimate achievement. And then we'll contrast bhakti to these others and show hopefully that they're the same. So interestingly, we know that this attainment is as Krishna says, that by which nothing higher uh, after attaining which, nothing higher need be attained. Now, Gurunapi vichalyate. Now, dukena Gurunapi vichalyate. That having attained which, not even the heaviest sorrows can shake you or move you. It's a really kind of meaningful sort of joy. This goal is hard to speak about, obviously, because it itself is not an object like other things. So, it's not to be attained in the same way that we go out and attain objects. It's not an experience. So, we're not going out to kind of catch hold of an experience, however gross or however subtle. It's thereby difficult to talk about because it's a different category of experience. That's why I think it was so nice to do the bhuti class alongside with this one, because we can kind of see that this bhuti of Shankara is exactly what is being spoken about in the Bhakti Sutra, albeit in a slightly different way. Okay, so while that ultimate goal cannot be articulated, smaller kind of, glimpses of this ultimate goal can. So take the case of jnana yoga. How does jnana yoga make us happy? It's quite simple. By recognizing that I am not this body, nor am I this mind, I am thereby free from all manner of suffering that pertains to the body and mind. Interestingly, all suffering pertains to the body and mind and nothing else. If I suffer, it's only because I suffer as a body or I suffer as a mind. So old age, sickness, death, and all of the psychological ills that come thereby are only experienced by the body and mind. So insofar as I think I am a body and mind, I must suffer. Of course, in a much deeper way, if I do think I'm a body and mind, I will identify with that which is incomplete, not quite whole, and therefore I will act in the world driven by desire to find that fulfillment which I don't sense is part of my inherent nature. So I'll go out into the world filled with desire, kama, and as a result, I will incur karma, whether good or bad. And karma keeps me in the cycle of birth and death called samsara. So insofar as I have agyana, ignorance, I'm going to have karma, desire, and therefore I'm going to enact karmas, actions, with necessary reactions of good and bad. And thereby I find myself in this wheel of birth and death, wandering samsara, looking for satisfaction, but like Mick Jagger, realizing I can't really get what I want, you know? (laughs) And um, realizing that I'll never quite get satisfied. So like that that's that's the the situation sketched for us by Jnana Yoga. And the solution is very simple. If the problem is Agyana, then the solution is Jnana. If I don't know what I am, if I think I'm the body and mind, and thereby all this the, the slew of problems comes, then fix that. Solve the problem at the root. If the root is avidya or agyana, just cure it with jnana. Realize in the depths of your being that you never were a body, never were a mind, never will be, never were, and now, even now, aren't a body and mind. What are you? Some something beyond that. It can't, again, can't quite be articulated what this is. However, recognizing this fills one with a joy and a sweetness. It's called Atmarati, which means savoring the self. So just look at the language here. Yeah, some secret third thing. Look at the language here. Atmarati. There's a deep, deep meaning in recognizing one's own innate nature as awareness. Something very sweet about that. There's something deeply meaningful, so meaningful that it's so satisfying, so satisfying that all the other satisfactions of the world pale in comparison. So the only reason, now follow this closely, the only reason why a jnani would not want to go out into the world and pursue sense pleasures is because they found something better. You see, the premise here is the only reason I'm enacting karmas at all is because of karma, desire. Buddha would call it trishna, thirst. But where, where, whence from comes this thirst for life? It comes from not already sensing my fulfillment and my completion. I don't already feel full. Now the self is by nature, Purnam, it's full. So to recognize myself as the self is synonymous with experiencing fullness, wholeness, completion, satisfaction. Insofar as I don't feel that self-satisfaction, that Atmarati, then and then alone, I will go out into the world and like get into trouble chasing this or chasing that. I will be a victim to craving and to fear, to anxieties and to possessiveness and all manner of jealousy. So life becomes a problem because I'm looking for fulfillment. And the only reason I'm looking for fulfillment is because I'm not already fulfilled in and of myself as the self. That's the only reason why things in the world seem so alluring. They promise fulfillment. They seem sweet. And the only way I can be allured by them, I'll stress again, is if I don't already feel an inner sweetness and inner fulfillment. So notice, knowledge, we talk about jnana, we're not talking about some intellectual insight or some analytical discovery or some stale, dead, dry concept. It's not about thinking I am Brahman. It's about recognizing that and then more importantly, enjoying that. I have to commune in some sense with Brahman. I must be able to close the eyes and sit absorbed in my essence nature. And insofar as I'm successful at that, I'll be able to open my eyes and enjoy it everywhere too. So then when my eyes are open, like the ajatis of the Himalayas, I should be able to say, ah, all of this is nothing but Brahman blazing forth. These mountains, these trees, this sun, all of these people, all of it is nothing but Brahman. Only Brahman is. And everywhere I look, I see Brahman. I see the self, that self, which I know to be Purnam, full and complete and sweet. So notice the end goal of jnana is a feeling state. It's a feeling state that is so satisfying that I'm freed from all of the anxieties of the world. I'm at peace. That's happiness as conceived by Jnana Yoga. Recognize you're not the body and mind, and that's the funeral of all of your worries. The death of all problems is recognizing you're not the kind of thing that can have problems. <laughs> okay, So that's Jnana Yoga. However, it's a difficult path. An incredibly steep climb awaits us, insofar as there are prerequisites to practicing Jnana as we sketched out in the Bhuti classes, there's the sadhana Chatushtaya, all these qualifications that I need to have for jnana. Okay, so that's jnana yoga. Now let's look at how raja yoga makes us happy. In raja yoga, the problem is that my mind is scattered, but if I am able to bring my mind to a single point, then I'm going to experience something like a flow state. There's a kind of sweetness and joy inherent in concentration. So the moment my mind becomes single-pointed, to any degree, all of us have felt it at one point or another. All of us, even beginners in meditation, know what it is to become concentrated, to become still, to become centered. Joy is inherent in that. There's a kind of beauty to simply becoming one-pointed. Eka grata, that one-pointed mind gives you joy. Now, of course, you can just extrapolate from that. If I'm experiencing this much joy from just this little concentration, how much more joy will come when I'm totally concentrated? when I'm totally one-pointed. So you get a glimpse of the kind of joy promised by Raja Yoga. Now, as we know from Patanjali, the goal of Raja Yoga is also jnana. It's just that through meditation, not necessarily vichara, not necessarily inquiry, through meditation, then I achieve what the jnani tries to achieve by inquiry. I, I achieve what the Yoga Sutra calls um, abiding in one's true nature. Tada, drashtu swarupe avastanam. I abide, avastanam. In what? In my swarupa, in my own self in my true nature. And the yoga sutra leaves it at that. That's the goal of the yoga, yoga sutra, to abide in your true nature. Because inherent in that nature is ananda, is sukha, is, is joy, is bliss, is sweetness. So just like the jnani, the yogi is interested in discovering their true nature and being established in it as well. It's just that their method is a little bit different. Okay, so the goal is the same then, ultimately. Now, karma yoga. Karma yoga is seen often by gyanis and yogis alike as a kind of preparatory stage. It's seen as a purification technique to help settle the mind and settle the senses so that I can actually sit and meditate, so that I can actually inquire into the subtle, you know, um, ideas presented by jnana texts like Aparakshana Bhuti. However, karma yoga is not just a preparatory technique as Shankara and previous philosophers might have given us the impression, but like a Swamiji goes to great lengths to prove in his karma yoga, karma yoga itself in and of itself is a complete path. And there he stresses that no faith in God is necessary. You know, in in karma yoga, one only has to work selflessly without any thought for the outcomes, without any fear of consequences. Now just imagine what that would be like, you know, wholly apart from doing work as worship as an as an act of service to your fellow brothers and sisters, like wholly apart from any of that, just consider what it would be like to work in the arena of action with heroic energy, yet without any need for any particular outcome to obtain. You don't need the work to go any which way, and nor are you afraid of any consequences. Just kind of extrapolate the feeling of moving about in the world like with such a badass state, you know? You don't care at all what the outcome is, and nor are you afraid of any consequences, and yet. And yet you feel this heroic energy and will to do work, to do activity. So the work becomes very rewarding. It's like art. You're doing it for its own sake without needing it to do anything for you. That's a wonderful thing. Now, if you add to it a deeper sense of meaning, like I'm doing this for God incarnate as all of these beings, then you'll get even more joy out of it, a deep sense of communing with your beloved as all of these people. Now, already I'm waxing bhakti, but just I'm, I'm trying to stay away from bhakti for the beginning here, just to kind of contrast bhakti to all these other different schools and show you that all of these are inherent in bhakti. So now in karma yoga, let's just say we're doing Buddhist karma yoga. Now, the Buddha was perhaps the greatest karma yoga of karma yogi of all time right? He spent his whole life doing nothing but serving other beings. In fact, legendarily, his last day of life, remember, he's like dying from food poisoning. He chose to spend his last hour on earth teaching a lesson to just a random stranger who happened to come to his cave or hut or whatever, asking for some spiritual advice. So he died teaching a private (laughs) for free. I think that's kind of beautiful. He didn't believe in God, or at least he 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 didn't say so. He was an agnostic at best, an atheist at worst. He had no sense of like, oh, we should pray to this being or that being. No, no. His God was his brothers and sisters. His God were animals and plants, so much so that the first veterinary clinics came up during the time of the Buddha. His God was really other people he didn't need Vedic gods or murtis or altars or anything like that. He was wholly content to do his bhakti in the altars of every brother and sister that he met. So Swami Vekranda would say the best place to worship God is not in temples, it's in human bodies, because the body is the humans are the taj mahal of temples. It's the best place to worship God's favorite place of worship is in other people. So the Buddha, he wasn't a bhakta in our traditional sense of the word bhakta. But was there really even a greater bhakta in the world than the Buddha? Was anybody more devoted? wholeheartedly devoted than the Buddha. He worked tirelessly for everybody. And you could say, what was the Buddha? By practice, he was a jnani. Uh, Or you could say he was a yogi. He meditated and meditated and meditated. He had an insight and he taught people philosophy. But notice, he was the greatest bhakta of all time. Though he was a yogi, though he was a jnani. Yeah, right? So this, this, I think, you know, Swamiji sings the Buddha's praises ad infinitum. This, Swamiji believes, is the height of bhakti. The Buddha's life, was a demonstration of what bhakti really looks like but i guess you could say the karma yogi of the buddha the karma yoga of the buddha is selfless service without caring at all what the outcomes are and acting without any fear of consequences now just imagine the joy of that yeah right like the buddha didn't need to know god he knew it in brothers and sisters so what 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 would be the joy of that you can imagine you can just feel what it would be like how rewarding it would be to act in the world without caring for consequences and without caring for Uh, outcomes be wonderful no fear no attachment you just do work for its own sake it would be very engaging and very rewarding so in this sense all the three yogas jnana raja and karma bring a certain kind of joy and i hope that you can see they're very interrelated the joy of all three is a little bit like self-sufficiency enjoying one's own inner state without needing anything to be any which way outside. Do you see? That's kind of like the basic kind of understanding in all of these yogas. The goal is to become happy by virtue of one's own inner being without needing happiness from anything else. Swamiji would say it differently. He would say self-abnegation is the goal of all yogas. Because once you drop the petty self, you also drop the hankerings and the cravings and the anxieties that often come with the petty self, with the small s self. So once you drop that self-abnegation, Swamiji says, then you achieve what the jnani, what the raja yogi and what the uh, karma yogi are all interested in. Just this feeling of like being independently happy, independent of anything in the world, without any reference to circumstances, just being established in your own self. It's wonderful. Now let's look at bhakti. So bhakti has inherent in it all these other yogas. How does it have jnana yoga? Because if you love something, the closer you get to it, the deeper that love will be. So that means the ultimate expression of love is oneness. It must be because if you get so close to something, ultimately you will merge into that one thing and you'll see this all over the place in Kabir's poems in Mira's poems in Ramprasad's poems all these great bhaktas they all sing about this ecstatic union you know this feeling of becoming one with the objects of their beloved so much desire to to approach that that beloved as you can see the bhakta bhakta kind of merges into gyani kind of the gyani and bhakta kind of merge at a certain point so gyani's become very devotional and uh, bhaktas become very philosophical and and i guess you could say Ecstatic about union, etc. How does a bhakta experience Raja Yoga? Because they fall so in love with God that they think of nothing else but God. All of their vitality is directed just towards God. So they become wholeheartedly infatuated, and therefore their attention flows uninterruptedly, unceasingly towards one point. So they also experience that wonderful flow state of the Raja Yogi. And Karma Yoga becomes obvious because once one sees God everywhere, then all work is work for God. All service is service for God. So all the yogas are inherent in Bhakti. That's very important to point out first and foremost. Now let's look at Bhakti proper. What is bhakti? In its own right, what is the approach of bhakti? That's what we're going to study. The text that we're looking at is called the Bhakti Sutra. It was composed by the legendary Narada. And like the Yoga Sutra is a manual for yoga, like the Upanishads, is in some sense, a manual for Jnana Yoga. And like the Bhagavad Gita, of course, it's got a lot of stuff, but you know, people see it as a manual for Karma Yoga. The Bhakti Sutra is the text par excellence for the study and practice of the path known as Bhakti Yoga, the way of love, the way of devotion, the path of um, becoming wholeheartedly attached to God. Now, as you know, all of these yogas ought to be practiced together. I wanted to sketch all four, but now I want to zero in on two. Big reason for why I'm doing this is partly because we're tantrikas. And tantrikas are not interested in one-sidedness. We want our cake and we want to eat it too. So we want to be gyanis and bhaktas. We want to have nectarian ecstasy wedded to piercing insight. We want to know God and to love God. We want to be God and then part from God and sport with her. We want it all. We're not satisfied with one-sided devotion. We don't want to be dry gyanis, nor do we want to be sentimental shaky bhaktas running after experiences that come and go without any understanding that God is the self of myself. We want to enjoy both attitudes. We want to be able to sit with eyes closed and have deep communion with the self in samadhi, nirvikalpa samadhi. Then we want to open our eyes and see that very self embodying herself as every being and thereby we enjoy the sport of bhakti. We want Nitya and Leela and we won't stop until we have them both. We demand both. (laughs) And you could say one, one experience in, in Shiva Tantra is called Shiva Drishti, which is vision of Shiva. Now, Shiva, as you know, is vast transpersonal awareness. So Shiva Drishti means closing one's eyes and becoming absorbed in oneness, in nirvikalpa samadhi, Resting in the space between breaths, in the space between thoughts. No mind. Amani Bhava. No mind. You know, Manonash, dissolution of all thought constructs. Chitta vritti nirodaha. That's Shiva. But that's not enough. When you have experience of Shiva, then you open your eyes and you have this thing called Shakti Drishti, which is the experience of Shiva manifesting itself as everyone, as everything, as God, as the created world, as all created beings, you know, Jiva, Ishvara, Jagat. Jagat, sorry. You see everything as nothing other than God. That's Shakti Drishti. So the goal of like Tantra then is to commune with eyes closed, commune with eyes open. That's the idea. So we have to balance both. So my deep, deep delight is to try to harmonize the two of them. So insofar as that's what we're doing, we're going to really, for the rest of this course, focus on just jnana and bhakti, having now explained how raja and karma are inherent in bhakti yoga. So as far as bhakti yoga texts go, the bhakti sutras is first and foremost amongst them. And we'll go verse by verse slowly and look at each verse. And it's, it's it's a wonderful adventure because Narada tells us about pitfalls and obstacles along the path. And he gives us very many practices to start cultivating bhakti. Because typically when we say, you know, the path of love and the path of devotion, some people will say, um, that's just not me. It doesn't come naturally to me. And as Kat is saying, do we do we really even know what love is? Have we ever really truly loved anyone ever in our life? We make pretenses about love. We say we know what love is. We use the word all the time or rather misuse it. But do any of us really know what it is to love? And what is it that is being loved? We don't even know anything about God. So not knowing about God, how can we love that which we don't know? There are all these questions that arise. Um, but before we address any of those questions, a maybe more fundamental question than any of that is just, what if it doesn't come naturally to me? What if I'm not? predisposed or inclined to love God. And even if I am, maybe it's not as much as it needs to be for a genuine practice of bhakti yoga. Now, fortunately for us, the Bhakti Sutra provides actual practices whereby we can cultivate this devotion. Where we, we, If we don't love God already, there are practices here that will help us love God. And if we already love God, there are practices here that will help us love God even more and more and more understand exactly what God is or rather isn't. Okay, so that's a beautiful thing. Now, when you look at bhakti and gyana together, you, you, you have to think that they're both the two wings of a bird or the two tires of a bicycle. It is possible for a bird to fly on one wing and it is possible to ride a tricycle, but only clowns ride tricycles. It's better to ride a bicycle. <laughs> it's better to fly with two wings. So how do they work next to each other? Now, gyana is a neti neti path, meaning you're saying, not this, not this. gyana helps you push things away, um, mostly the world. You're pushing away that which you know does not satisfy you. So jnana is a kind of neti neti path. Whereas bhakti, by contrast, is an iti iti path. You pull something towards you. So you push the world away and pull God towards you by the same action. Now, jnana done by itself, in some sense, is premised on creating a vacuum. If I can just push the world away, there will be a God-shaped vacuum there and God will rush in to fill the space that I just created. Just like in our Hatha yoga class, when we stretch something, blood will flow into what was previously constricted. So making space will cause there to be an inflow of something. Similarly, if I can make space by pushing away all that is transient and ephemeral and illusory, you know, if I want to use that language, then I make space for that which is real, um, that which is eternal, that which is stable, God. So while I'm doing this neti neti, it doesn't hurt to add itti itti. It doesn't hurt to also affirm the existence of God and move in the direction of God. Similarly, while I'm doing this itti itti, it doesn't hurt to do a little neti neti. That's my claim. That's my argument. Though traditionally, sometimes people say bhaktas bakta, might be harmed by jnana, though jnanis are always benefited by bhakti. You know, so that that's, you get that kind of languaging, but I don't know. I'm a Shaiva Tantrika. That's, that's not the languaging you're going to get from me. We see no difference between Shiva and Shakti, formless and form. So the goal then is to articulate the iti iti path together while always recognizing that it's wholly harmonious with the neti neti path. Okay. That needed to be said. Now let's look at the iti iti path, the path of affirming the existence of God. Let's pick up the bhakti sutra for real. That was all the preamble. I think we need to do for this class. I'm, I'm, I'm quite satisfied, I think. Let me check. Yeah, I'm satisfied. Now we can just focus on the text. So let's talk about Narada a bit. Who is Narada? Um, Because it's important in some sense to know who authored the text. It it helps us to know the Bhagavad Gita was composed by Krishna. That gives us a certain reverence in studying the text. We know this is God himself incarnate as man speaking directly to us about how we ought to move about in the world. Now, when we look at an agama, like any of the Shaiva Tantra texts or the Shaktantra texts, shakta tantra text it it's important to recognize that it's shiva himself revealing this unto us shri bhairava uvacha shri bhairavi shri devi uvacha then you get a certain sense of reverence so the author matters so let's ask the question who is narada you know what where does he appear now narada is is a legendary figure. We don't know if he actually existed in history, but the first time we encounter Narada in South Asian spirituality is in the Chandogya Upanishad. Now, this is important. In the Chandogya, Narada approaches Sanat Kumar in the capacity of a student of Jnana, of Jnana yoga. So here, Narada is depicted as questing after that knowledge that will save him from grief forever. So in the Chandogya, he approaches one of Brahma's sons. Sanat Kumar is one of Brahma's four sons. And Sanat Kumar is a rishi established in the highest wisdom of Brahman. He's a Brahmagyani, And so Narada, he goes to Sanat Kumar and he asks Sanat Kumar, he says, he actually says to Sadakumar something to the effect of, look, I've learned everything. I've learned the arts. I've learned the sciences. I've learned the smritis. I've learned the shrutis. I've learned all the philosophy there is to learn. I know it all. And yet I'm still not free from grief. I have, all, I guess he's saying I have all this undigested knowledge. I don't yet have wisdom. I don't yet have that attaining which nothing higher need be attained. I don't have that um, attaining which not even the heaviest sorrows can shake me. I'm not yet enlightened. Help me. And Sanat Kumar reveals to him this very important teaching. There is no joy in the finite. The only joy is in the infinite. And then he teaches him the infinite and he attains to Brahma Jnana and he becomes this Jnani par excellence. So in the Chandogya Upanishad, Narada is depicted as a Brahma as as um, a Rishi there in the Chandogya. Now, the next time we hear about him is in the Srimad Bhagavatam. And there he's convincing Vyasa to compose the Bhagavatam. So Vyasa, you know, he composed the Vedas, he composed the Mahabharata, he's like this great poet-rishi of India, Uh, Kaviraj, king among the Kavis, king among the poets. And so, He is now being enjoined by Narada to compose what would later become one of the most important bhakti texts of all time, the Bhagavatam, which tells the stories of Krishna and Dhruva and all these other great bhakti stories are all there in the Bhagavatam. So Narada is begging Vyasa to compose the Bhagavatam. And there, Narada gives us a bit of a biography, an autobiography. He tells us who he is. And he actually tells us about two of his past incarnations. So we get a story not only of one life, but of two lives. So here's the story of Narada in his own words to Vyasa. I'm paraphrasing a bit, but Narada claims that in a previous cycle of existence, you know, a different cycle altogether, he was the son of a maidservant, which I think is very important. He's not like a Brahmin or a Kshatriya, or maybe, you know, he, he's of a low caste. You know, he's not arguably one of those people in ancient Indian society that would come into contact with spiritual knowledge, that would be meditating and studying and learning Sanskrit and all of that. He's in some some sense, not qualified by caste from orthodox Indian standards, you know? So he's he's a child of a maidservant, but by his good fortune, the maidservant is a maidservant in a rishi's house. So this is like a forest hermitage or some cave or something. And there's like a, a group of rishis, great sages, great philosophers who are gathered there and they meditate and they practice spirituality. And this maidservant arguably would like, you know, probably would pick flowers for them for their worship clean stuff and manage the house and stuff like that so this boy was the son of such a person and there he was a low born boy wandering about at the feet of all these rishis now the rishis took a great liking to him so they started to instruct him and in their company he soon developed a deep love for spirituality so he learned a lot about spiritual life from the rishis and one rishi apparently took such a liking to him that he fully initiated him into the mysteries of religion and he started practicing and practicing and practicing. And one day, tragically, his mother had died. And I think she was bitten by a snake or something while out picking flowers, or something had happened. Something tragic happened, and the mother died. And so, this young boy, who would later become the great sage Narada, he was freed of his last earthly attachment. So his mom was no longer there. He no longer had to help the rishis and he'd already received enough education to go off on his own and actualize what he had learned. So he said to the rishis, I'm going off into the forest. I'm going to perform austerities. So he left. He left behind his old home. He left behind his dead mother and off he goes into the forest. So it's a bit like the Buddha. He leaves behind a life he knew to go into the forest and learn from life itself. So he goes in the forest and allegedly he sits under a tree, much like the Buddha, and he closes his eyes in deep meditation and he has an experience of God. Now, Swami Prabhavanandaji reports in his commentary of the Bhakti Sutra that this was Nirvikalpa Samadhi. He experienced his oneness with God. So he didn't have a vision of God in the traditional sense of seeing God as the other. He actually had a very high experience of merging right away into God and feeling himself to be God you know, discovering the oneness of him and God. Now, when he opened his eyes, the experience went away and he was very eager to get it again. And he was trying very, very hard to achieve that experience once more. And then he heard the voice of God and God said, it's not given to you to have this experience again. It's only through your devotion that I was moved to give you this experience at all. I wanted to give you a glimpse of the oneness of you and me. Um, But insofar as you still have desires, your place is still in the world and you're not yet ready in this life for such an exalted experience again. But here's some advice. Spend time in the company of holy people, Sadhu Sangha. Serve them. Practice. Learn to meditate more. And that was apparently all the instruction that Narada got and he spent the rest of his life doing just that. Seeking out holy people, going on pilgrimages, meditating, and just living out the rest of his life. I think this is pretty important. A low-born, low-caste boy learns the highest spiritual knowledge, achieves nirvikalpa samadhi, and still has desires, arguably, uh, left. He still wants to be in the world. He still wants to experience certain things. And he goes off to do that, but he tries to do that as spiritually as possible while cultivating the company of holy men and women and visiting sacred places and all of that. Okay. Now, that's the last we hear about Narada in that incarnation. Now, apparently, after he leaves the body in that incarnation, he actually merges into God he achieves the highest state, videha mukti, post-mortem. So he merges into God and that's the end of the cycle. So for one whole, oh, I should say in the interim between two cycles, he's just merged in God. He's in this state of Brahma maybe absorbed into Brahman, et cetera, et cetera. Then when the next cycle comes around, like in some sense, he's sent forth from God. So in some versions of the story, like God Himself sends Narada into the world to teach bhakti. In other versions of the story, Narada himself gains a boon from God to like incarnate as a realized, actualized sage, perfectly free from the beginning of his uh incarnation. And he gets a license from God to wonder at will anywhere he likes. So he can wander through all the Lokas. So his special power is he's not confined to any one world. He can freely wander. He can wander all over the Bhū Loka, the earth plane. He can wander in the Bhūvar Loka, the astral plane. And he can go to like Gandharva Loka or the Pitri Loka or Brahma Loka or any of these other Lokas, what have you, Vaikuntha, Kailash, any of these kind of mystical, like spiritual locations in the astral. He can just go there and hang out there with all the beings that are there. And so he he becomes kind of popular everybody knows him. They're like, Hey, look, it's Narada. look, the." He's just like walking around everywhere. Uh, what is he doing? Well, all he wants to do now is walk about with his vena, a special mystical instrument that he plays, his um, tingsha, his little bell. And he just wants to sing the names of, of God. He just wants to delight himself on his vena, sing the names of God and teach devotion to everyone. So he's a kind of like divinely commissioned teacher. He has a mission to teach devotion to everybody, but arguably he's not here for business. He's here for pleasure. You know, if customs ask him business or pleasure, he'll say pleasure. He's here to just enjoy God, enjoy God's uh, leela, God's play, enjoy the relative, being himself established in freedom. He now just sings the songs of God. So everywhere he goes, he sings about God. And when people hear the songs that he sings, their spiritual conscience is like elevated. They become exalted. They all learn. So the idea is that anywhere in the world, anytime in the world, if you have devotion to God, if you sincerely long for God, Narada will appear to guide you. That's the promise. (laughs) So Narada is like love embodied, singing, playing music. He's lost in ecstasy all the time. And he just wanders. He wanders like a free person. So it was just the Avaduta's full moon. You know, it's uh, the, the full moon we just had. It's a full moon for Avaduta, for Datatreya. It's called Datatreya Purnima, the full moon of Datatreya. Now, an Avaduta is a person who wanders the world with no attachments whatsoever. He's often naked. He looks like Lord Bhairava. Lord Bhairava is himself an Avaduta. And uh, he often is surrounded by dogs, which are seen as kind of outcast in Indian society. And he just like, Meditates everywhere. He's totally absorbed in Brahman consciousness. And so he's free. He's free of all things. And he wonders. The Avadutta typically walks around with his water pot, needing nothing, caring for nothing, just like the wind, like a breeze blowing through, you know, in the world, but not of it, like a lotus leaf. Nothing sticks to him. Water just glides off of him. And he just, you know, so Avadutta's are like that. Narada has that vibe. Though he's not scruffy and hanging out in cremation grounds with dogs, typically he's garlanded in jasmine flowers and wearing beautiful things, and his hair is done up really nicely. But in the same way as an avaduta, he wanders about totally free, just singing and being established in bliss. Okay, so so much for Narada. Narada is the embodiment of love, and he's here to teach bhakti, the path of love. So it, it seems like Narada himself will come to a sincere aspirant to teach them love. It happened to Dhruva. So in the Bhagavatam, we get a story of a boy named Dhruva. And this is a very important story too. By the way, I'd like to kind of elliptically um, get at a few principles in bhakti. So hopefully you can hear, hear implied in what we've said so far, a few principles, such as Narada being a low caste boy, you know, uh, Narada having desires still in the world his first time around. you know, like All of these are very important to keep in mind. Okay, now the next thing. So Dhruva, the story of Dhruva. This is an interesting one because Dhruva is born a prince. And at first, his mother was beloved of the king. But soon the king remarried and the king started favoring his younger wife. And thereby, uh, therefore, I, I don't know why I, I've been using the word thereby so much. I don't even think it's grammatically correct. But he starts um, he starts like neglecting his first wife and by consequence, his first child. So Dhruva is totally neglected by that. And dad is preferring the new wife and the new children. And so Dhruva is really sad, you know, his dad's not playing with him. And through a series of unfortunate events, they soon are reduced to poverty, kicked out from the kingdom, like all sorts of horrible stuff happens. And Dhruva realizes that only God can help them now. They're in such dire straits. So he goes to God for material help. He wants his father to love him. He has daddy issues. He wants money. His mom is impoverished and he wants to be reinstated into royal life. So he's going to God for very arguably selfish ends. So he goes, and because his longing is so sincere, he has such a genuine desire for God, Narada appears to him. So it's not like Narada is waiting for the pure hearted devotee who is only going to God for love and love alone. He'll appear even for Dhruva, who had very worldly desires, but still he went to God with it. He went to God and he prayed to God, that he would be reinstated into his kingdom, that his father would love him, that he would make money for his mother and all that stuff. Narada appeared and initiated him into bhakti. So apparently what Narada thought Dhruva is what we're going to be studying now. Narada thought Dhruva this bhakti yoga, this secret and very powerful technique of loving God. It's more than meets the eye. There's a lot to it, a lot of subtlety, a lot of mystery. So Narada initiates Dhruva into this bhakti yoga and Dhruva, a young boy, by the way, he's a child which is very reassuring for us. This is something a child can do and perfect. Arguably, it's only a child that can do this, arguably. So anyway, Dhruva does this. He perfects his bhakti yoga. And as a result, he has a vision of God. Now, Swami Ashokananda tells the story in a really funny kind of jnana-oriented way. So according to Swami Ashokananda, in one of his essays called Let Us... Uh, I forget, it's in it's in Let Us Be God. I think it's the first essay there. Um I forget what title it has, but there he says, Dhruva, he goes into Nirvikalpa Samadhi. He's like meditating, 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 doing the practices from the Bhakti Sutra. And he goes into Samadhi and then God appears in front of him, but he doesn't take notice of God actually. He's too absorbed in the love of God to even notice when God shows up. This is a very important point. Love itself becomes God for Dhruva. God is kind of like secondary to it. It's the love between him and God that totally absorbs him, not God. (laughs) So that's another principle that we're going to talk about. God is love, as Swami Vivekananda said. Okay, so then God appears, and Dhruva is wholly unconscious of it. And God, apparently, according to Swami Ashokananda, says, Dhruva, I'm here, I'm here, and has to like jostle him out of his samadhi, apparently. So then Dhruva is like, oh, hi. And, and apparently God says, so Dhruva, you wanted this, this, and this, you wanted to be reinstated into your kingdom. You wanted your dad to love you. You wanted money for your mom and to you know, all that here, take all of it. And he says, no, I don't want any of those things anymore. Why do I want my dad to love me anymore? I'm over that. Why do I want a kingdom? I have no use for a kingdom. I found love. So look at this renunciation. He didn't, he just didn't, have taste for the kingdom anymore because he found something better. He was so fulfilled. It's an Atmarati. He's so self-satisfied with loving alone that he doesn't need the kingdom that he prayed for in the first place. So this is a very important point. Dhruva was praying for money, for a kingdom, for love from his dad. He was praying for very worldly things. Though that was his entry point, it wasn't his ending point. His ending point was a complete distaste for any of those things being established in the joy of love and love alone. So God was like, No, I'm sorry. Um, you have to get what you ask for. I gives him his kingdom, instills him uh, in the ki- installs him as the king in the kingdom. So he goes on to be king Dhruva and he, you know, he, he rules. But any case, he was made into a star in the sky. He's the pole star. Dhruva is like the brightest star in the sky because he's there as a kind of example and guide for everyone. What a guide, huh? Starts re- really selfishly, but You know, his deep, deep, deep sincerity and longing was what made a bhakta out of him. And God did appear to him, give him whatever he wanted or whatever. And not that he even needed it at that point. So anyway, that's the story of Dhruva. Now in the Bhagavad Gita, we get four classes of bhaktas, And we can see, yeah, it was a cool character arc, right? And we can see um, which, which one, to which one does Dhruva apply? You know, which one of these applies to Dhruva? The first type of bhakta in the Bhagavad Gita is the one who is totally frustrated with the world, deeply dissatisfied, And it's kind of like a loser type and really needs something and therefore goes to God for it. So praise to God for money, for security, to save them from the problems of the world. (laughs) Yeah, I know. So this is one class of (laughs) bhaktas. The person who goes to God because they're deeply dissatisfied in life. Okay. Yeah. And the second type of devotee is one who um, desires things in the world. So this is not a person who's frustrated and depressed. This is a person who's full of craving. And wants things and has desires. So they go to God to have those desires fulfilled. They say, God, give me a car, God, give me a house, God, you know, that's the second type of bhakta. The third type of bhakta is a kind of philosopher type, maybe like the Buddhist logicians or the Advaitins, you know, who don't actually meditate. You know, there, there are some Advaitins like Sri Harsha who claim that logic is higher than meditation and spiritual experience. So there is a class of devotees actually, they're very devoted, but in a dry and overly philosophical way where they're not interacting with God. They're just kind of discerning the real from the unreal. They're just an- an- analyzing and all that. And that's still awesome. That's still a third type of bhakta. Now the highest type of bhakta though, is the bhakta that can say, mother may make me mad with thy love. What need have I of reasoning? The bhakta that can say, um, give me mother love and love alone. I want only love for thy lotus feet. A love untainted by desires. A love unsmitten by selfishness. A love craved by the devotee for the sake of love alone. I don't want bodily comforts. I do not crave name and fame. I do not seek the eight occult powers. There's no one in this world I can call my own but thee. Mother, give me that kind of love. So that bhakta is the fourth class of Bhakta, and it's the highest class. A Bhakta who loves God for love's sake alone. That Bhakta is more interested in love than in any outcome of love. In fact, that Bhakta is more established in love than even the object of love, God. It's love for love's sake. Now, all four Bhaktas, Krishna says, are, are, are awesome. You know, he says all of them are noble, they're all great because they're all coming to God. Whether it's because of fear, or anxiety, whether it's because of desire or craving, whether it's through jnana or philosophical inquiry, having logically deduced the existence of God, like the nyayas and the Vaisheshikas, or through wholehearted devotion for love and love's sake alone, all of them are noble. All of them are to be celebrated. So Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita himself expresses inclusivity to all classes of bhaktas, which is awesome, I think. Okay, so that's Narada. Um, and that's Dhruva, the story of Dhruva. So Narada initiates Dhruva into this wonderful mystery. And the Bhagavatam is full of stories like this, Pralada. You get all these great stories of great Bhakta. So over the series of our few lectures that we're going to be doing on the, the Bhakti Sutra, we'll of course share a lot of stories together about Bhakti. Because really Bhakti, if you want to learn it, you have to learn it from the gaze of, of, of I mean, from from stories. you have to learn it from the great saints of this tradition, the great bhaktas, really moving stories. So now I just want to read you a little bit from perhaps one of the greatest bhakti books of all time, the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna. As Divyananda Pranamathaji once said to me, everything you need to know about bhakti yoga is here in the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna. It's perhaps one of the greatest books on ecstatic love. And um, I want to give you a kind of taste of what this ecstatic love looks like as um, Swami Nikilananda reports it, translated from M. So I'm going to read to you now um, the chapter called The Festival at Panihati. Okay, so I'm going to read to you from, so what happens is, you know, they're all going to this festival in Calcutta. So the master, he, he like promises everybody that he's not going to like misbehave. You know, he tells everyone he's going to be calm, he's just going to sit in the carriage and he won't get overly excited or run away or anything like that. So he reassures all his disciples that he's not going to cause a scene. <laughs> so here's what happens <laughs> I'll read to you a little bit from uh, my gospel, page 253, the Swami Nikhilananda version. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So <laughs> the master had been invited to the festival by Manisan, who was the custodian of the temple. Ram, M. Rakhal, Bhavanath and a few other disciples went with the master in a carriage. Okay, this is actually not the scene where he promises the people that he won't go crazy. This is a bit earlier. This happens, that scene that I was describing happens later when he gets cancer. And then, you know, it was not good for his health for him to be participating in these extravagant religious events. So he told everyone that I won't do anything. I'll just sit quietly. And of course he didn't do that. So this is actually not that story. I'm realizing now this is a little earlier. Uh, But look what happens. On his way... To Panihati, uh, Sri Krishna was in a light mood and joked with the youngsters. But as soon as the carriage reached the place of the festival, the master, to the utter amazement of the devotees, shot into the crowd. <laughs> he joined the Kirtan party of Navadvip Goswami Mani Sen's guru, and danced, totally forgetting the world. Every now and then, he stood still in samadhi, carefully supported by Navadvip Goswami for fear he might fall to the ground. Thousands of devotees were gathered together for the festival. Wherever one looked, there was a forest of human heads. The crowd seemed to become infected by the master's divine fervor and swayed to and fro, chanting the name of God until the very air seemed to reverberate with it. What a description. The crowd, were, you know, they were infected by the master's divine fervor. And the very air was reverberating with the fervent shouts of Hari, Hari, you know. Um Drums, cymbals, and other instruments produced melodious sounds. The atmosphere became intense with spiritual fervor. The devotees felt that Gauranga himself was being manifested in the person of Sri Krishna. Flowers were showered from all sides on his feet and head. The shouting of the name of Hari was heard even at a distance, like a rumbling of an ocean. Like the rumbling of the ocean. Can you imagine like that place, just the kind of the vibe of it, dare I? Use that word, you know, just, and and you can't even imagine the scale of this festival, thousands of people, as far as the eye can see, all chanting in divine fervor. There must be something to it. If all these people are so drunk, just from the second-hand high of Sri Ramakrishna whirling about and dancing and singing the name of God. Sri Ramakrishna entered by turn into all the moods of ecstasy. In deep samadhi, he stood still, his face radiating a divine glow. In the state of partial consciousness, Mahabhava, he danced, sometimes gently and sometimes with the vigor of a lion. Again, regaining consciousness of the world, he himself sang, leading the chorus. This is bhava. So he's going through all these different moods, you know um and so what ends up happening is the crowd is like surging and surrounding him and they all eventually make it to the temple and he goes into the temple and they're all trying to cram and get in the temple and they're peeking in through the doors and all that and everyone is just so infected by by his fervor now here we're seeing Sri Ramakrishna exemplify three states of bhakti that we learn from the life of Sri Chaitanya and all the great uh, uh all the great kind of um Vaishnavas that that really dis- describe the states of Lord Chaitanya. You know, Gaudiya Vaishnavism, they've really kind of got it down to a science by studying the life of Vaishnava. So there three states to note here. One is his state of singing the name of God. So when Sri Ramakrishna is singing or when Lord Chaitanya, who is a figure that we'll be acquainted with a lot in the course of this series, when he's singing the name of God, he's in the state called bhava, which is a kind of conscious state in which he's consciously enjoying God. Then he goes into the state where he can't sing anymore. No words are coming from his mouth, but he's still dancing, sometimes gently, sometimes with the vigor of a lion. This is called Mahabhava, the great absorption or the great mood. Then he goes into Prema, which is Samadhi. There he doesn't sing or dance. He just stands still in Samadhi, like in his pictures. You know, there's a wonderful picture where he's like being supported by Hridoy. That's his samadhi. So he's in prema. This is, the bhakti language for this is prema, where one becomes so absorbed that one loses all outer consciousness. The body becomes stiff as a board. There's barely any breath. And it looks like, you know, you're like a radiant beaming corpse. And he would alternate between these states. He would go from Samadhi to Bhava to Mahabhava. He would, you know, run the whole gamut of these experiences. So notice it's a very dynamic state. Now, in the case of Sri Chaitanya, welcome, Freedom Das. Good to have you. Good to see you. Now, in the case of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, you know, he used to dance in the streets and he would be surrounded by a crowd, just like in the scene aforementioned. And there's a story where when he was in samadhi, it was at night, right? People would hold torches up to his face just to kind of see him in that state. And once you saw him in that state, you would get such a second hand high that you yourself would start dancing around. So the the bhava, the the bliss of the bhakta, is contagious. It infects everyone around. I like the word infects, and everyone becomes enthralled by watching the bhakta be a bhakta. You know, that's one demonstration of bhakti and the fervor and joy inherent in it. Now, let me give you another one. This one, I think, is a little more intimate. So this next scene is from the chapter M at Dakshineshwar. So now uh, M has stayed in Dakshineshwar for like nine days. You know, he's like effed off from all of his worldly responsibilities, and he's just living in the temple garden itself staying in the Panchavati, staying in the Nahabat, like that. He's like living with the master. Yes. (laughs) So he's here. And they have a lot of really, so many deeply intimate conversations by the bell tree. Just the two of them, master and disciples. Very sweet, very deep. And some of the deepest teachings, I think, happen in these few chapters. So anyway, towards the end of the book too, you get some really crazy deep teachings when he's close to the end of his life. But I think this is particularly interesting. So here, page 357. They're talking about bhakti and, and things of that sort. Um, again, Master says, I perceive that living beings are like different flowers with, with various layers of petals. They are also revealed to me as bubbles, some big, some small. So Master is just talking as usual, he's describing his experiences, he's giving lessons. He's just kind of talking. He's in a normal state, arguably. Then look what happens. While describing in this way the vision of different divine forms, the master went into an ecstatic state and said, I have become, I am here. How thrilling. He's identifying totally with consciousness. And then he's saying, I consciousness have become, I am here. Uttering these words, or who knows what he's saying, really. This is my interpretation. Uttering these words, he went into samadhi. His body was motionless. He remained in that state a long time and then gradually regained consciousness, partial consciousness of the world. So again, you get this idea of prema and mahabhava, partial consciousness, samadhi. So every time you see samadhi in bhakti, no, it just means prema. And if you see partial consciousness, that in-between state, no, in bhakti, it's just, it's called mahabhava. Okay, Okay. so he, he regains partial consciousness of the world. He began to laugh like a boy and paced the room. His eyes radiated bliss as if he had seen a wondrous vision. His gaze was not fixed on any particular object and his face beamed with joy. Still pacing the room, the master said, I saw the Paramahansa who stayed under the banyan tree walking thus with just such a smile. Am I too in that state of mind? Then apparently he sits on the small couch and starts talking to the divine mother as if she was right there with him. And he says, I don't care to know. I don't even care to know. Mother, may I have pure love for thy lotus feet? Then as a kind of aside, he like looks to M and says, one attains this state immediately after freeing oneself of all grief and desire. Then apparently he looks back to the mother and he says, mother, thou hast done away with my worship. Please see, mother, that I don't give up all desire. Mother, the Paramahamsa is but a child. Doesn't a child need a mother? Therefore, thou art the mother and I am the child. How can a child be without the mother? Sri Ramakrishna was talking to the Divine Mother in a voice that would have melted even a stone. Again, he addressed her saying, mere knowledge of Advaita, I spit on it. Thou dost exist as long as thou dost keep the ego in me. The Paramahansa is but a child. Doesn't a child need a mother? So I think that's so striking of the... You, you know, by the way, if you read texts like Ishvara, Pratyabhigya, Vrivritti, Vimarshini by Abhinava Gupta, you know, super a bit of a mouthful. But there you see the same attitude. Abhinava Gupta says, I spit on all this logical arguments from the Buddhists and Advaitins. He actually thinks Shankara and Gaurapada aren't like the typical Advaitins because they are practicing Tantra and they actually had experiences. So Abhinava Gupta is saying, what is this dead logic, this reasoning? Similarly, you get the same mood here, which is like, I spit on this Advaita, which is all, you know, um, reasoning and no experience. He's actually talking to Divine Mother as if she was actually there. Now, Swami Vivekananda, in his intimate talks at Thousand Islands Park in June of 1895, he says to his disciples, and these are his like highest quality disciples in America, he says to them, the Divine Mother is a person that can be seen and spoken to. That's another very important principle here in bhakti that God is to be spoken to, to be seen, to be communed with in this way. Now, notice what's going on. He's beaming, he's joyful, he's pacing around like a little boy, he's talking to mother, he's half in, half out of samadhi. It's a wonderful state. And just reading about it excites you, right? Can you imagine living in that state where you could talk to mother anytime you wanted, where you could come in and out of samadhi? It's the highest expression of a human life. Now, notice he said, Mother, thou hast done away with my worship. So here I want to introduce another principle of bhakti. And that's the difference between gauni bhakti or vaidhi bhakti and para bhakti. So gauni, and I'll put it in the chat, gauni bhakti or vaidhi bhakti is rules, regulations, rituals. Vidhi means injunction. So for instance, when the sun sets, I am to perform an arati. That's vaidhi. I have to do that. The sun is setting, now it's time to wave the five items in front of Divine Mother. When I see Mother, I bow, I do a pranam. Um, I do a puja once a day. There are rituals associated to the practice of bhakti, which don't worry, we'll talk about extensively in the course of this, this series. So these are things that you do to cultivate bhakti. But once that actual love arises, these things fall away. They're no longer necessary. So then you graduate uh-huh, from Gavani bhakti to Para bhakti, supreme love. These things fall away. Okay. So I think that's enough really to sketch out the principles of bhakti. Let's just close by doing one verse maybe from the bhakti sutra. Okay. Yeah. cat's like, no, we don't want to end. I also don't want to end. This is so nice. I love talking about bhakti. We're going to hear a lot of cool stories that I can't wait to share with you of bhaktas from all these different traditions. But I really do want to point to something in the bhakti sutra before we close. So let's take up the first verse. So now we know, um, yeah, you know, the gospel is so intoxicating. Now we know what in some sense, the state of a of a supreme lover of God looks like just from looking at the case of Sharama Krishna, right? So the gospel of Sharama is is just Cover to cover, a wonderful description of life as a bhakta, of the ecstasy and joy and beauty inherent in it, and also how delightful it is to others. Okay, so now let's look at the first verse of the bhakti sutra. It's a very beautiful um, grammatical point that we can make here. Atato bhaktim vyak yas maha. This is the opening of Narada's bhakti sutra. So I think we ought to kind of take a moment and pause and just appreciate the journey we're about to go on because it's not about simply reading a book from cover to cover. It's not about simply considering ideas. I hope thus far I've done at the very least what I hope is wetting the appetite for bhakti. I just want to kind of, I just threw a bunch of darts at the board and, and let's see which one's stuck. And let's have a discussion now, QA, Q&A and let's talk to one another. But I just want to kind of prepare the ground for this text. Now, when you read a text, You should not read it like a book. It's not a book. It's an oral transmission from Narada himself. Wherever two or more are gathered in my name, there I am also. You must, whenever picking up a text, act as if you're about to receive the text as a transmission from the living master that is Narada, who is present anytime we pick up his sutras. So don't read the book. It's not to be read. Don't just like read it and be like, oh, cute, it won't work that way. You must receive the text meaning each verse must be received from the heart. We must, we must sit up tall. We must imagine that Narada himself is speaking to us, that we're receiving with our whole being. We're only going to take one or two verses at a time and meditate on that verse throughout the whole week and really understand the verse before we take up the next verse. We're going to try our best to memorize the verses as we go from week to week to week. You know, So next week, we'll memorize this first verse like that. We really want to make this text a part of our very being. We don't want to just study it. I spit on that Advaita, Sri Ramakrishna says. I spit on intellectual studying, on logical studying. No, no, no. We must study from here. Don't sit in bed and read this text like that. You can. There are no rules in bhakti, but the best way to receive this text is with this aura or attitude of reverence and sacredness. You know. So all the preamble is out of the way. Let's now receive together bhakti. Let us together be initiated by the grace of Narada into Bhakti yoga, let us actually become bhaktas, you know? So my prayer now to the divine mother is the same as the prayer of Sri in the gospel. He prays, mother, make me mad with thy love. Mother, I throw myself upon thy mercy. I take refuge at thy hallowed feet. I do not want bodily comforts. Can you say that? I do not want bodily comforts. Imagine, I do not crave name and fame. Really? If right now, David Geffen signed your band, and you're about to go on the greatest tour of your life. Really? You could say, I don't want that. Really? You don't want name and fame? Mother, I do not crave name and fame. I don't want, I do not seek the eight occult powers. Really? If you got them all, all the things you will be able to do, you really don't want them? I do not seek the eight occult powers. I do not want bodily comforts. I do not crave name and fame. I do not seek the eight occult powers. Grant only that I may have pure love for thee, Mother, a love unsmitten by selfishness, untainted by desires, a love craved by the devotee for the sake of love alone. Why? Because I recognize, Mother, that nothing is greater than that. Nothing comes close to the sweetness of simply loving you. Money, power, name and fame, these things are like trifles compared to how beautiful it feels to simply love you for the pure sake of love and love alone. No state is as exalted as this one. And therefore, I can confidently say to you, mother, that I don't want anything else that you have to offer. And I know, mother, that you can give me anything. I know that at a drop of a hat, you would give me a kingdom. You would not hold back from giving me name and fame. You want that for me. I know that you would give me health. If I asked for Divya Deha, the immortal body guaranteed to Hatha yogis, I know you would give it to me, mother. There's nothing you wouldn't give your child. And yet there's nothing I'm asking of you except this. Pure love for thy lotus feet. Can I actually say that I have no one in the world but thee? That all these things that I consider, oh, my my possessions are actually yours. Can I say that I have no money in the bank and actually feel that way? All the savings that I have in my bank, they're yours. You own all this money. You own all of these possessions. And what about my relatives? I call this my wife, my friends. Really? Can I actually say that they belong to you, mother? I pray that I may be able to say with conviction that I have no one else in the world that I may call my own but thee. Can I admit truly that I don't know how to worship? I have no idea. I've read all these tantras and I'm thoroughly confused. I have no idea how to worship you because I don't really know what you are. I can't understand you at all. I've gone mad trying to understand you. I don't know how to worship. I don't have any austerity. I don't have the grit to practice like our ancestors practiced. I'm without knowledge. I'm without devotion. So if I achieve anything at all, it is only by thy grace. Can I say that with sincerity? Can I say to you, mother, that I only want your love and that I surrender completely to whatever it is that you will do with me. Do with me what thou wilt. For thou art my heart's beloved and thou and thou alone. That's the prayer that we ought to embody as a result of being bhaktas. That's the state that we hope to get to. That's our goal, to just be in love with God. Then if God comes and says, do you want Samadhi? Do you want liberation? We should scoff and say, no, 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 no. I just want to love you. (laughs) Okay, here's the first verse of the Bhakti Sutra of Narada. May we be blessed. May we achieve this love by the grace of Narada.
0: Om. atato bhakti yamaha
1: and now therefore an exposition on bhakti and now now therefore why is there the word atato why not just Bhakti vyak yasyamaha, an exposition on bhakti. Now we know in every text, whenever we study a text, each text provides us four details in the beginning of the text. This is called anubandha chaturstaya. What are the contents of the text? What is the goal of studying this text? What is the relationship between the contents and the goal? And to whom is this text addressed? All text must give you these four pieces of information so that you can decide whether or not you should study this text. So here we're being told what the contents of the text are. So why not just say bhaktim vyak yas yamaha? Why say atato bhakti vyak yas yamaha? What's the function of that atato? Interestingly, it implies something that comes before you pick up this text. And now, now what? Now that you have longing, now that you recognize that there is room in your life for devotion in any capacity, now that that has arisen in you, Therefore, I, Narada, am here to give you bhakti. And now, therefore. So that's a beautiful thing. The only reason we're studying it now is it must be because Narada favors us. And the only reason he favors us must be because we are sincere aspirants. So recognize that about yourself. You want God, whether you've articulated it or not, you must want God. Otherwise, why would you be studying this text? And now, therefore, in answer to your longing, to your craving to feel the living presence of God, I will uh, expose bhakti to you. I will reveal bhakti to you. It's not as simple as it might have sounded. Okay, yes. And I'm just going to close with this last verse, verse two. Yes, ready to receive. So now this verse is so important to me because of the Sanskrit grammar. It's very, very beautiful what he does here. Satvasmin. Paramah prema, Rupa, sa that bhakti. Actually, no. I would like to translate. Yeah, sa can be that, but I, I think this makes more sense. This bhakti, you know, this bhakti. Um, he doesn't say bhakti; he just says this or that, meaning that in the first verse that. Tu asmin, parama, prema rupa. That bhakti is of the form of the highest love towards this. Okay, now look at the Sanskrit here. He's using the neuter. This is not a gendered word. Tu asmin. He's not saying to God he or to God she. He's using the neuter to it but he's saying this. So look, he's not specifying what God is or what God isn't. He didn't say God is Vishnu Narayana. He didn't say it's Shiva. He didn't say it's the formulas. He just didn't say. And nowhere in the text does he say. Doesn't that give you goosebumps? It's eerie. A text about the love of God is not really that interested in God. It's interested in love. There's no need to say whether God is he or she or it or formless or has form. That's up to you to decide because your object is not as important as your relationship to it. It's the love that is truly God, not whatever um, you know image you've set up to reflect that love. I think that's what is happening here. That's why he's not using he, it's not using she. Now please note this is very different from like Ramanuja. He he very clearly says Vishnu Narayana. In Ramanuja's writings, he says Brahman is Vishnu Narayana. He has a very kind of clear idea in his mystical experience as to what God is and what God isn't. Right? So Ramanuja says God is Saguna and he's Vishnu Narayana. He's not Shiva. He's not Kali, etc. And that's produced in recent years. I mean, a lot of kind of dogmatism and bigotism not in Ramanuja's case, but in his followers, arguably, that's the risk of saying God is this or that. Narada does not fall prey to that. And that should show you that this text is not a Vaishnava text. It is and it isn't. A lot of people think the Bhakti Sutra is for Vaishnavas, for those who love, love, love Krishna and Rama. And you know, if you watch Indian like God movies, there is a character, Narada, and he almost always is depicted, maybe Anisha will know this, but he's always depicted going, Narayana, Narayana. He like wanders around the world, you know? You've seen those movies? He like walks around and he's kind of obnoxious. He just like shows up and he usually causes trouble. Usually when he shows up, it's to tell Shiva that he wasn't invited to a wedding or something. Usually he's like, it's, yeah, he's goofy and silly. He's on, yeah, he's d- depicted like walking around with his little loot. He's like a court jester. Yeah, he's like mischievous. He's like a Mercury figure, like Hermes, just kind of flowing between the worlds. Um, and he goes, and when, when you hear him, you'll hear him off stage. Narayana Narayana. And then he walks inside. And then whether it's a Tamil show or Hindi show or whatever, he'll say something to some character and you know. So anyway, he's depicted as this kind of like fella, right? Showing <laughs> Narayana, Narayana. So you might get the impression that, like, yeah, <laughs> you might get the impression that this is um a, a Vaishnava and he belongs to the Vaishnava tradition because he's devoted to Vishnu Narayana. He sings only to Vishnu, he sings Hari Rama. Hare Krishna. But if that were true, don't you think Narada, Na, Na, Narada would have specified here in the Bhakti Sutra? He would have said to Narayana, to Vishnu, to Rama, to Krishna. He doesn't say that because like Sri Ramakrishna, his love is far broader than just one form. He loves that form and all the forms. He loves the formless. I don't want to say that for him because he doesn't say that. He's content to simply say that sa, meaning Bhakti the in the first verse, sa, to asmin that is to this parama prema rupa. That bhakti is of the forms of supreme love towards this full stop. Okay, why does he say this? Swami Prabhavananda ji in his commentary argues to make God seem closer. Because if you say that again, you'll say that bhakti is the supreme love for that. But God is not a that, God is a this. God is the indweller. God is closer to you than your jugular vein, it says in the Quran. This place, Sri Ramakrishna says. Ac- excellent point, Kat. So remember the Quran, right? God is closer to you than your jugular vein. Um, God dwells within. The kingdom of heaven is within. Luke. So Luke, right? So all of these are references to the closeness of God. That's why he chooses the neuter in Sanskrit. And he also chooses this to create that closeness. And now what is bhakti? The definition of bhakti, what bhakti is, is parama prema rupa. Rupa means of the form of, or um, the quality of, and prema means love. It just literally means love. But here it's parama prema, supreme love. And he's almost implying that it is above and beyond love in the ways that we're typically taught to conceive of it, taught to conceive of it. Okay, so... I I think I want to close this session by reading you Christopher Isherwood's words in his introduction to Swami Prabhavananda's commentary. It's so funny that I think think it's worth kind of ending our first class with Christopher Isherwood's very beautiful and somewhat poignant and very funny essay on bhakti. It's, It's rather short. Okay, so here we go. You know, it's crazy. Christopher Isherwood does in like three pages what I've taken an hour and 20 minutes to fumble and try to do and not even do. He so elegantly describes bhakti. Look at look at what he says. This is goals. <laughs> Narada tells us that the path of devotion is the easiest path to God. Oh, I forgot to say, it would be remiss of me to have started a bhakti um, class and not said this. Sri Ramakrishna, in, in no uncertain terms, explicitly enjoins the way of Narada as the practice of this age. So he says the easiest way to get to God The best path for this day and age is the path of bhakti enjoined by Narada. So Sri Ramakrishna himself is giving a stamp of approval of this text as the best text. Okay, So even Narada, he tells us that the path of devotion is the easiest path to attain God. The path of devotion called bhakti yoga in Sanskrit is the approach to God through love. The bhakta makes a continual conscious effort to love God and to feel God's love for him. To this end, He repeats God's name, Japa, and performs ritual worship, Krishna Seva. In order to have a particular object for his worship, he fixes his mind upon one chosen aspect of God, the Ishta Devata, or one out of the several divine incarnations. Narada, like other great teachers, assures us, however, that as the Bhakta's devotion grows, he will become more and more aware that he is actually worshipping the God within himself, which is his own true nature. Very important idea. God is the self of myself. There's no difference between the Ishta and the Atman. It's a very important point. Um, in the supreme state of bhakti, Bhakti, worshipper and worship will be realized as one. As defined by Hindu philosophy, there are four ways of attaining this unitive knowledge of God. Bhakti yoga, karma yoga, jnana yoga, and raja yoga. Karma yoga is the approach to God through selfless action, action performed without desire for personal gain or fear of unpleasant consequences. It is often practiced by serving God through one's fellow men. Jnana yoga is the approach through discrimination between the real and the unreal. When all transitory phenomena have been rigorously analyzed and rejected, God alone remains and becomes known by a process of elimination. Raja yoga is the approach through intensive practice of meditation. Now it is obvious that these three yogas demand qualities and powers which are not possessed by everyone or even by a large majority of human beings. Karma yoga calls for heroic energy as well as great humility and patience. Jnana yoga for an exceptionally acute intellect. Raja yoga for unwavering concentration and control of the senses. Compared with them, the practice of bhakti yoga appears far simpler, less austere and more inviting. Besides, while we may not flatter ourselves that we have exceptional energy, intellect or concentration, we are all firmly convinced that we are capable of love. Therefore, we readily accept Narada's statement that bhakti is the easiest of of yogas, too readily in most cases. For do most of us realize what it is that we are accepting? Have we any idea at all what Narada means by loving God? Have we even fully considered what we ourselves mean when we use or misuse the word love? Have we indeed ever truly loved anybody? Oh, there is a phrase which was once current in everyday conversation and popular songwriters to be in love with love when grown-ups were talking about the emotions of their teenage children they would say with indulgent smiles oh she's just in love with love that's all it is meaning that the teenager in question wasn't really in love but only indulging in romantic self-deception real love the grown-ups implied was something the teenagers would learn later something adult and serious and down to earth, and there was a hint of grim satisfaction in their tone, as when combat veterans allude to what awaits a new recruit. (laughs) The phrase has gone out of fashion, but the attitude persists. Real love is still defined in terms of sequences and responsibilities it creates. Social acceptance or disgrace, marriage or divorce, wealth or debts, childbearing or childlessness, domestic slavery or desertion, When people seem to be talking about love, they are in fact discussing its consequences more often than not. Indeed, it is sometimes hard to see the love for the consequences. The relationship usually discussed is of course the sexual relationship, but no one can deny that the relations between parents and children, friends, colleagues, even animals and their owners can become equally strained in times of crisis and create similar economic and social difficulties, similar torments of jealousy, and merciless struggles of opposing egos. There are many people, certainly, who manage to loosen the bonds of their own egotism enough to be able to love each other more or less unselfishly throughout their lives. Love or at any rate, the memory of love is always present to some degree, even uh, in the unhappiest of relationships. And as Narada reminds us, all love, no matter how the ego may distort or restrict it, is in essence divine. But the question remains, can a consideration of these states of imperfect human love be of any help to us in understanding the concept of bhakti yoga? The love of God described by Narada is a love in which there can be no jealousy, no struggle of egos, no desire for material advantage or exclusive possession, no dread of desertion, a love which is incapable of unhappiness. Even the pain of temporary alienation from God cannot be called unhappy. For the devotee who feels it knows simply because he does feel it that God exists and the relationship between them is alive and real. But this concept of a love without unhappiness is just what we, as beginners in the study of bhakti, can scarcely grasp. That isn't love at all, we say to ourselves. It's cold, unnatural, inhuman. For we must admit, if we are to be frank, that we have become so conditioned by the world's view of love that we actually need to be made jealous, need to suffer craving and anxiety, need to make the hopeless demand for exclusive possession, because without those familiar pains, we are unable to enjoy the respites respites from pain, which we call happiness in love. (laughs) So perhaps, in the last paragraph, so perhaps there is still some usefulness in the old silly sounding phrase, to be in love with love. Perhaps it can be helpful in giving us our first glimpse of what is meant by bhakti. Let us stop thinking of love as a relationship between two individual egos and concentrate instead on the capacity for love, which is within each one of us. It may be very small, but it is our own and it cannot fail us. We can all agree that our love, when it is thus regarded without relation to any external object, is both lovable for itself and completely free from desire or pain. And in this way, we can begin to grasp the idea that love is God. So in closing, let us define bhakti as the felt presence of God, as the self of yourself, the indweller, establishing a real relationship with your own capacity to love and becoming ecstatic therein. Bhakti yoga, is the cultivation of love, but more importantly, of your capacity to love. Thank you all. We'll we'll resume verse three next week on Friday, same time.
0: Namashivāya satatam pancha krithya vidhāyane, chidānanda ghanya swatma paramātav bhāsine. Om. Sarvamangala mangalye shive sarvata sādike, śāranye triyambake gori nārāyani namo stute. Om Shri Harim Paramanandam Upadeshtaram Ishwaram Vyapakam Sarvalokanam Karanam Tamnam amyaham. Om Samyagbhoda Vicharena Bhavanam Asvabhavatah Labdha-Bhododayanandam Vande-Sangsthanam Om Shanti 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 Salutations to that Lord
1: Shiva who is consciousness saturated with bliss, the self of myself, who is always performing the five divine accents. Salutations to that Narayani, lady of the universe who is the beauty in all things beautiful, the consort of Shiva, the accomplisher of every task, the three-eyed shining Gauri. Salutations to that Lord Hari, Vishnu, the attractive one, who is the all-pervading spiritual cause of everything, who is the teacher of teachers, who is bliss himself. Salutations to awareness, saturated with bliss, which is discovered upon any inquiry. That is the the god I worship. I worship the formless and the form in all of its aspects. Om
0: Shanti Shanti Shanti. May this be an offering to Sri Krishna.